Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 23 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. It was a typical room for a teenage boy in the 1980s. Football programs on his desk with his homework. A well-used Amstrad hi-fi system with a tape cassette and radio used to record the top chart hits on a Sunday, hitting the pause button before the DJ fades back in. Posters of his favourite musical acts covered the walls. Melon Kim, Tapau, Madonna, Samantha Fox, Standard Fair in 1988. His single bed pushed against the wall of his cosy room, with his black pyjama bottoms tucked neatly under his pillow to wear the next night. But there would not be a next night.
there was no school that day. Being a Saturday, Lee Boxall could do what he wanted, while his mother Christine was going to Bromley to visit her sick mother who she was looking after. 13-year-old Lindsay, Lee's sister, was spending the day at a friend's house. Lee's father Peter was going shopping in Sutton. That left Lee, who had plans to meet a friend Russell Clark in Sutton High Street. It was September 10th, 1988, and the weather was still pleasant. Lee got up later than the rest of his family. It marked the end of the first week back at school after starting a new term. When the teenager plodded downstairs in his pyjamas and slumped into the armchair, still waking up, his father asked Lee what he was up to that day. Lee replied in a sleepy mumble, and his family left the house in Sheem, South London, to get on with their day. Lee got dressed in a Flintstones t-shirt, printed with a typical 80s black outline and touches of bright colours. The writing under the picture of Fred Flintstone read, Big Fred Kahuna. Before he left the house, Lee put on his blue and green swatch watch, faded black jeans and brown suede shoes. Lee and his friend Russell spent a few hours in the town chatting as they window shot. He told Russell that he was going to watch a football match at Selhurst Park Stadium, the home of Crystal Palace FC. Lee was an avid supporter of his hometown's football team, Sutton United, The club were not playing at home that day. Instead, the team were playing away in Lancashire. Unable to travel that far but being a fan of the game regardless of who was playing, as an alternative, it is believed Lee initially planned to go and watch Millwall play against Charlton Athletic at Selhurst Park. The friends parted ways about 1pm and a witness saw Lee again around 2.20pm at the north end of Sutton High Street. He was outside of what was then a Tesco supermarket, which has since changed to an Asda. Based on the witness sighting, it is unlikely Lee was on his way to the football match. It was far too close to kick-off, which was at 3pm, and he would have had to get a train to travel there. Lee had not attended Selhurst Park football ground before. Perhaps the teenager was being cautious and decided to give it a miss. Around this time, his mother Christine was going to catch the bus home from her mother's. She considered popping to the telephone box to let her family know, but she did not want to miss the bus. Lee, at 15 was of an age where he was learning to make his own choices. Where he went in his free time was his decision. There had never been any cause to worry. He would always call his parents or be home for dinner in a timely manner. However, when Christine got home, Lee wasn't there as he usually would be.
Lee Boxall was part of a happy and loving family. His mother Christine, a dinner lady, his civil servant father Peter, and his younger sister Lindsay. They had lived in the same semi-detached house since 1975, two years after Lee was born. The town of Cheam in Sutton feels more like a village, surrounded by open green spaces, mock Tudor buildings, and a bustling high street, perfect for someone seeking a quiet life. Lee's mother Christine said that at five feet six inches tall, Lee would measure himself every week from a young age to check if he was going to be tall enough to join the police force. A teenager with some close friends and a crush on a local girl, sometimes Lee would make an effort to walk the neighbour's dog to have an excuse to pass by her house. The Boxall's home was unremarkable from the outside in, but the suburban street would later be filled with a turmoil that thankfully most of us will never know. Life was moving at a steady pace for the Boxalls, until it came to an abrupt stop. They neither returned home that night for dinner, nor did he call. He usually would straight after watching a football match. He wasn't the partying type. He had never disappeared before. After searching for him themselves, Peter and Christine waited for one of Lee's friends to come home. They were almost certain he must have gone out for the day with the friend and his family who had travelled to the seaside. But when Lee's friend and his parents arrived home late, to the Boxall's dismay, Lee was not with them. Lee's mother and father contacted the police in the early hours of the next morning. It had been warm all day, though it was approaching autumn. The Boxalls left their front door wide open, hoping their son would walk in at any minute, as if nothing had happened. It became apparent that Lee was not the type of child that would voluntarily up and leave of his own accord. Two wage packets from Lee's paper round were left in his room along with £40 in cash, usually something a runaway wouldn't leave behind. None of his clothes were taken, and Lee's maths homework book was left open. It was as if he had left it, ready to continue when he got back. Within a week, announcements were being made at football stadiums to aid in the search for the missing teenager. Three months would pass after Lee Boxall's disappearance. As Christmas approached, there was still no word and no breakthrough in the investigation. Christine spoke to a reporter for the Sunday Mirror. The worst thing is not knowing. 
We don't know whether he is alive or dead. But I can't help thinking he has been killed. Addressing the speculation that her son had simply chosen to leave, she said, He had no reason to run away. If he did, I would say. But he didn't. Christine also talked about one of Lee's traits that made her feel he could have been abducted or tricked. His only fault is that he is too trusting. Someone gained his confidence. Lee's father Peter described what it was like looking for his son. He is such a normal kid. I drive down the street and every boy I see looks just like him. Christine Boxall contacted Susie Lamplew's parents in order to get some advice, as their daughter had also disappeared over two years earlier. Diana and Paul Lamplew were kind and helpful, offering advice to the Boxalls. I'd seen Diana Lamplew so many times on television after Susie went missing, Christine Boxall said, but I never imagined I would suffer the same ordeal. Diana advised Lee's parents to try and do as much as possible themselves in the search for their son, and that's precisely what they did. But they struggled. The family of four were now three, and Christine was finding it hard to adapt to everyday life. She would still set a place at the dinner table for her son. Sleeping was difficult when the mind won't pause. She had to take a sleeping pill every night so she could get some rest. But the medication only did the job until 4am. Christine would say, I lie there, and terrible things go through my mind. People tell me I should shut dark thoughts away. But how can you? It's such a wicked world. It was early December, and the number of officers on the case had been reduced, and the investigation wound down. Detective Superintendent David Fielding, who was working the inquiry, told reporters at the time, This kind of search is unprecedented in this area of London. We've used hundreds of officers, but now there are only four of us left working on the case. We've just had no information to lead us further forward. It's very distressing for the Boxalls and as a parent myself. I find it makes me worry for my own children. It was suggested to the Boxalls that they should spend Christmas away somewhere, but they couldn't bring themselves to leave the family home in fear that they could possibly miss the greatest gift that they could ever receive. Lee walking through the front door. That sadly did not happen, and they faced their first Christmas without Lee. The Boxalls were resourceful and tireless in their search to find Lee. 
Even his sister, who was barely a teenager, tried to think of ways to get the message out about her brother's disappearance. She wrote to her favourite pop stars, Bros, hoping they would spread the word. The lead singer of Tapau, Carol Decker, came forward and made an appeal. He had had posters of Carol on his wall. The family shared 5,000 flyers hoping someone somewhere would come forward with information. February 1989 brought Lee's 16th birthday. By this time, he had been missing for five months. His anguished mother told reporters, Not knowing what happened to him drives us insane. Crime Watch, then a primetime BBC television show, had featured Lee's case, but nothing new came to light. The officers working on the investigation had dwindled to just one. Undeterred, the Boxalls kept trying, making sure the disappearance of their son was not forgotten. A reward of £1,000 for information was put in place. Christine made another appeal, this time in Staffordshire where they used to live. An old family friend and neighbour circulated the missing posters in the area. By December 20th, 1989, there was a small paragraph in a newspaper saying the Boxalls had offered to forfeit their savings, £25,000 in all, to find out where Lee was. The Boxalls had struggled to get any column inches on the case. It seemed to be that the disappearance of the 15-year-old was not considered newsworthy enough at the time. The Boxalls were doing everything they could, visiting holiday camps, football and sporting clubs, festivals, anywhere where large groups of people gathered so they could get the message out about Lee's disappearance. The inquiry had slowed since he had first gone missing, but they were determined and had some success with keeping Lee in people's thoughts. In July 1991, an American professional golfer, Tim Simpson, featured a missing poster of Lee Boxall on his golfing bag during a game in Southport. He had been highlighting missing people all season, featuring a different missing person every game. Christine also started volunteering on a helpline for parents whose children had gone missing. Some people believed they had seen Lee, Two sightings were of individuals living rough in London. But unfortunately, it turned out neither of them was Lee. Photographs of Lee were displayed all over the Boxall's home. His room was kept as it was when he left. His bank statements still landed on the doormat every month. Each time the same. Nothing deposited nothing taken out. 
Christine feared she would not recognize her son if she saw him. There was no way to know what condition he would be in. Lee would have transformed from a boy in his mid-teens to a young adult. He could have facial hair, had a growth spurt, changed his hair and weight. Any number of things could have altered his appearance. It was extremely tough on the Boxalls and their daughter, who was by now 15. The same age her brother was when he vanished. Understandably, they were very cautious with her. Speaking about her daughter, Christine told reporter Catherine O'Brien, We cannot let what has happened to Lee destroy her life. We tend to spoil her and get overprotective. Every time she goes out, we worry. But she is very good and always rings us to let us know where she is. In June 1993, American rock band Soul Asylum released 90s anthem Runaway Train. In the UK version of the accompanying music video, images of missing youths flashed on the screen. Amongst those was a photograph of Lee Boxall. In September of that year, a television programme called Missing featured Lee's case. A month later, Princess Diana visited the Missing Persons Bureau at East Sheen in London. It just so happened Peter Boxall was there. He showed her how up-and-coming computer technology could automatically generate age progression on photographs, including one of his son, so the people looking had a more up-to-date picture of how Lee might look. Peter Boxall said, We have to live in the hope that one day he will return. In 1994, a brewery agent from Stafford came up with a novel idea after talks with the National Missing Persons Helpline Charity, which was established a few years prior. Mark Fagents thought printing the images of missing people on cardboard beer mats was an excellent way to get their picture out there. The first two missing people he wanted to raise awareness about were Lee Boxall and 13-year-old Sonia Forsyth who hadn't been seen for three years since she had left home in Belfast during 1991. A case we will be looking to cover in the future. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with Scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Sadly, the investigation into Lee Boxall's disappearance seemed to go quiet for many years. However, his parents were still active and spending a lot of their time helping people in a similar position through the charity Missing People. Then all of a sudden, decades since Lee went missing, something unexpected happened. St Dunstan's Church in Cheam is just 1.3 miles on foot from what was then the Tesco supermarket on Sutton High Street, where Lee had last been seen. At the time of his disappearance, an outbuilding was sat on the extensive grounds amongst the cemetery. It was old and fit to be demolished, 
but a man who had offered to tend to the graves of veterans through an ex-serviceman's initiative, began to use the building. William Bill Lambert, in his 50s, had made use of the long-forgotten structure. He had not been in the army long. Lambert had been called upon for national service, but in his late teens he was thrown out because he was caught impersonating an officer while trying to charm a woman. Not long after, when he was 20, Lambert worked for a refuse company, and around this time he met a 15-year-old girl. The pair went on to marry and have a family. With his children now adults, Lambert became groundsman and grave digger at St Dunstan's Church in Sheen. The outbuilding on the church grounds was not used to simply store gardening equipment. It became an unofficial youth club in the mid-80s. Teenagers and some younger children had dubbed this building the Shed. It was a place to hang out with friends. They would experiment with drinking or smoking, like a lot of children at that age do. The teenagers wanted to get away from the prying eyes of their parents, but in doing so, it gave paedophile predator William Lambert an opportunity to prey on vulnerable children. It was long after Lambert's crimes, but in 2009 when a victim of the abuse, Kerry Carter, found the courage to come forward after counselling, the wheels of justice started to turn. Based on the information they received, officers managed to find three other victims who were all now grown women, some of whom had children of their own. Though all four of the women had not kept in touch over the two decades since William Lambert abused them, one of them no longer lived in England, the accounts they gave to the police were terrifyingly similar. It transpired in time, This was the break investigators had been looking for. They were aware of William Lambert's activities for 17 years and had even gone through a failed trial when they first learned of what was going on. While waiting for the legal proceedings to begin, William Lambert's counsel managed to get his client conditional bail, which meant he was able to stay at home although he was neither allowed to visit St Dunstan's church nor make any attempt to contact his accusers. William Lambert of Malden Road in Sheen went to trial for his crimes at Croydon Crown Court in May 2011. On his way into court, the 74-year-old used a walking stick and tried to hide his face with large sunglasses and a tweed hat. He held a piece of white paper over his mouth, attempting to disguise the lower half of his face. He pleaded not guilty to all charges, but refused to take the stand in his own defence. 
Through his counsel, he claimed the accusations were a malicious fabrication. The court heard from the victims of the abuse. They were then girls aged 11 to 15. The crimes were said to have occurred between 1985 and 1990. One woman told the court of an awful incident when she was 14 and in a very vulnerable position. She feared she could be pregnant. Being extremely worried that her parents would find out, she told a friend about her situation. The friend suggested they go and see William Lambert. He had manipulated children, convincing them he was a warlock with magical powers. The victim's friend had been one of the children groomed in this way and was sure Lambert could help her friend. Lambert convinced the worried girl to lie on a table, pulling a curtain across her legs so she could not see the lower half of her body. Desperate for a solution, and with Lambert confirming he could, quote, fix it, she stayed. The witness told jurors, It was strange. I knew it didn't feel right. But you don't want to go home and tell your mum you are pregnant. She would have killed me. He said he would sort me out and told me to lie down while the other girl held my hand. I couldn't see him because of the curtain, but I could feel him. She added, I should have walked out there and then. I was so silly. It transpired she was not in fact pregnant at all, just late for her period but she was convinced at the time that Lambert had helped her. The red curtain being pulled across her body during the abuse was a common theme. Other victims that had been targeted by Lambert described the same thing. A pre-recorded video of one witness was shown to the court, in which she described how she was confident it was Lambert behind the fabric. He spoke to her, and she saw his hands. He had love and hate tattooed across his knuckles. She had endured abuse at home since the age of six, and it made her susceptible to grooming from William Lambert. Describing her then thoughts on the defendant at the time of the abuse, the second witness said, He was lovely. He made us feel good. And that's when he started talking about witchcraft, or witchy-poo and golden dawn, the witchcraft he was in. I was fascinated. All my friends had problems, and we wanted to escape those problems. In one instance, Lambert raped the victim on a tombstone, and said by suffering through it she would get power from the black floating monk that was rumoured to haunt the graveyard. He used the same child to lure her friends to the shed, and if he abused them, he told them to hold her hand as they were assaulted. The witness later said, I thought he could offer me something I needed, 
he could help me be a bit stronger than I am. Prosecutor Gillian Etherton QC told the jury that Lambert would usually prey upon girls who had troubles by manipulating them, making them believe that any special powers he said he had as a warlock would be transferred to them through the act of sex. Describing Lambert's actions, Etherton told the court, he would listen to their problems. They would trust him and confide in him. He showed no concern for them giving consent. He hoodwinked, deceived and manipulated them. Without that manipulation, the children would never have allowed any physical activity with this deranged man. It took the jury six hours to arrive at a decision for all charges. William Lambert was found guilty of one count of rape, two counts of indecent assault, and two counts of procuring girls to have sexual intercourse by deception. In June 2011, Judge Timothy Stowe QC sentenced Lambert to a total of 11 years. He had to serve six years for rape and five years for the other crimes. After the verdict, Detective Inspector Neil Matthews, who was an investigator on the case, told reporters, The verdict sends a clear signal the Metropolitan Police will pursue relentlessly those who commit these type of offences, even when a number of years have passed, as in this instance. Representatives of St Dunstan's Church made it clear they had no idea what was going on. The victims of Lambert's abuse and the investigating officers were not the only people to be relieved at his incarceration. William Lambert was a father, and although his daughter was in her 50s in 2011, she remembered him trying to sexually assault her when she was in her mid-teens. Although she found the court case shocking, she was even more stunned by the fact Lambert was still alive. His daughter was led to believe he died of cancer a decade earlier. Karen Kennedy told the Sutton and Croydon Guardian, I know what this man is capable of and suddenly there were all these girls out there whose lives have been ruined by him forever. All I want is for this monster to be off the streets. That same year, in 2011, Detective Inspector John McQuaid from the Metropolitan Police reviewed the case file on the 1988 disappearance of Lee Boxall. He came to the conclusion the investigation should have been treated as a murder, not as a disappearance. Despite his beliefs, the investigation was still handled as a missing person inquiry though McQuaid pointed out there was little evidence Lee was still alive. In fact, there was no evidence, and since the news was unearthed at the shed that there was, quote, known paedophile activity amongst a group of offenders in the Cheam area at the time Lee disappeared, 
officers in the Metropolitan Police Force had a strong theory about what could have happened to Lee all those years before. Though it was not considered Lee had been the victim of a sexual assault, detectives believed that the teenager had spotted something he shouldn't have. Detective Inspector John McQuaid told a correspondent for the BBC, Lee used to go to the shed, and there is a theory that he may have seen something that may have led to him losing his life. Although shy and a bit socially inept, he was a strong little character. If he had seen it, he would have stood up to them. I think he was a victim of circumstance that afternoon. Detective Chief Superintendent Guy Ferguson, Detective Inspector John McQuaid and Peter Boxall gave a press conference. Further to that, there has never been any positive sightings of Lee at that football game or any other. And uh, we now believe that he would have gone back towards Cheam to the place known as the Shed within the grounds of St Dunstan's Church. And we've now evidenced the fact that he did used to go there. We feel that on that afternoon or that evening that we came to some harm there. And since that day, he or his body had never been found. £20,000 was offered as a reward for further information. A renewed appeal was broadcast on BBC's Crime Watch in March 2013, with the specific mention of The Shed. Calls came in from adults who were children in the late 80s and early 90s and attended the unofficial youth club. Detective Inspector John McQuaid again spoke with the BBC about what information they had received and said a victim of abuse that occurred all those years ago who had never reported it before spoke up. But despite the helpful calls about the shed, no one claimed to know for sure what had happened to Lee that day. John McQuaid went on to say, I think there is still somebody out there who must have been there, who saw what happened. People who used to go there in 1988 could be parents themselves now, who have children of Lee's age when he went missing, and we appeal to their consciences. Before the Crime Watch broadcast, in 2012, a forensic team had employed ground-penetrating radar to look for any disturbances around the graves that surrounded the shed. Christine Boxall, Lee's mother, spoke to the media. You know, our hopes are raised now that <clears throat> we're going to find him, but then it could be dashed that it could be false. I don't know. But we... All the time he's not found, I have to hope that he's around. The search was stopped temporarily over winter. So far, the forensic teams have spent more than three months meticulously examining the excavated area with ground-penetrating radar scanners. They're looking for any little clue which will tell them more about the teenager's disappearance all those years ago. 
the dig started up once again in April 2013. And it, it will be a tremendous relief to us, well, even if Lee is dead, at least we know what, where he is and what happened to him. It was one of the most comprehensive forensic archaeological digs that the Metropolitan Police Force had ever undertaken. It cost the department £1 million, and they spent a year excavating St Dunstan's churchyard. But no trace of Lee Boxall was ever found. In April 2014, something occurred in Lee's case that had never happened before. Several arrests were made, although the suspects were not named in the press. Three men aged 78, 54 and 41 were taken into custody along with a woman who was 42 years old. It initially appeared to be a breakthrough progress was finally being made. The 78 and 54-year-old were arrested on suspicion of murder, conspiracy to pervert the course of justice and indecency with children. The 41-year-old man and 42-year-old woman were arrested on suspicion of conspiracy to pervert the course of justice and indecency with children. Frustratingly, however, Following further investigation in September of that year, the female suspect was told there would be no subsequent action taken and the charges were dropped. And two years after their arrest, the three men were told the same. Lee's father, Peter Boxall, released a song with the Missing People Choir called Where Is Lee? During a Missing People carol service hosted by newsreader and journalist Sir Trevor MacDonald, they performed the song in December 2013 at St Martin in the Fields Church in Trafalgar Square. Peter Boxall said the idea for the song came to him in a dream. He was inspired by volunteers for the Missing People charity who encouraged him to have singing lessons. Some of the lyrics in Where Is Lee read, In my dreams, I see your face, walk with you, hold you safe. Close my eyes and think of you until the day I die, I see you again. The Missing People Choir performed the song in 2017 on the television show Britain's Got Talent. They did so well they made it to the final and brought more awareness to the charity and the missing loved ones they were so desperate to find. So where are we now? 
in March 2019, an exhibition titled Unmissable was held at the other art fair in the Old Truman Brewery. The event in London was supported by the Missing People Charity and the curator was Ben Moore, whose brother Tom went missing 16 years before. The exhibition featured pieces from various artists who had created portraits of missing people, including Richie Edwards, the former guitarist and lyricist for the Manic Street Preachers. Artist Amy Florence admitted her detailed picture of Lee Boxall. It was created from a photograph taken just a few months before he went missing. It occurred to me that his family have had to live with kind of all the questions of where he's gone and what might have happened to him for 30 years, which when he went missing actually before I was born. And that to me, I kind of, I found very moving. All profits from the sale of the art pieces went to the Missing People charity. Two months later, in May 2019, the case again came to the public's attention after a documentary show aired on Channel 5 called Missing or Murdered, which covered the disappearance of Lee Boxall. A woman with the back of her head to the camera, given the false name of Sally, said she attended the shed around the time Lee went missing. Approximately two weeks after his disappearance, she claims to have seen a mattress propped against the wall in the shed, which had a large dark mark on it, a colour that resembled blood. She told the makers of the TV show, We were invited into a private place and told quite blatantly that Lee was not going to be seen again, that Lee was dead and that he was buried most likely in grassland not far from the shed. Christine and Peter Boxall would later give an interview with the Sun newspaper. The article pictured Lee's bedroom, which had remained untouched, almost identical to the day he disappeared. The dried blue tack still kept the posters on the walls, and the football programmes appeared to have aged just like Lee's family. Christine and Peter would allow their daughter Lindsay and their grandchildren into the room from time to time. The Boxalls are able to see their daughter reach adulthood and become a mother and accountant. Now in her 40s, Lindsay had told a reporter for the Telegraph newspaper how her brother's disappearance had shaped her. Having children of my own now, I can't think what it would be like if anything happened to them. My children are my world, and I now realise as a parent how devastating it must have been for my own parents when Lee went missing, and over the years that followed. I suppose what happened is part of who I am now. Lee Boxall's bedroom is like a time capsule, though everything around it has moved on. The Boxalls' feelings for their son haven't changed since 1988. 
In May 2019, the Boxall spoke to Sun reporter Holly Christodoli. Peter said, If we were to go and Lee came home, what would he think or do? He would think we don't care anymore. We're scared we would never see him again. Christine and Peter have been searching for their son almost half their lives. They are desperate to know what happened to him. It is believed that the answer to Lee Boxall's disappearance might be known by a small group of people who went to the shed, the makeshift youth club at St Dunstan's Church in Sheen. It is likely the police have heard plenty of rumours, but not enough evidence to bring charges yet. In September 2019, Detective Inspector John McQuaid made another appeal for information to that group of people who might know more. Your evidence would confirm Lee's presence at the shed and help to identify his assailant. I believe that Lee was assaulted by one person and that they had help from one or more others to dispose of his body and or cover up his death. I would appeal to those people to come forward and confirm this and help us locate Lee's body. I accept and wish to make it clear that it may not have been the intention to kill Lee, and that your role in assisting the main attacker will be taken into account. But you have to take responsibility for your actions and face the consequences before it's too late for Lee's family. Someone knows what happened to Lee and where his body is buried. If you or anyone you know has any information about the disappearance of Lee Boxall in September 1988, please call Crime Stoppers in the UK on 0800 555 To find out more about the Missing People charity, including how to donate, volunteer or to download and share posters of missing people, visit missingpeople.org.uk. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.